It's a, a recurring theme for me, isn't it? That uh, this Bible that we read from every Sunday, that hopefully some of us are reading from every day, is truly a remarkable book. It is a collection of 66 sub-books written over a span of some 1,500 years by 40-some-odd authors. And yet it, it weaves together seamlessly this story of God's creation, of man's fallenness, and then God's plan for redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And it's all woven into here, and there is this large narrative filled with many sub-narratives and stories. And if you've grown up around the Bible, if you've spent a lot of time with it, you probably have gotten pretty good at the, the big stories. You might not be able to tell me who Shamgar is, what he did, or even where to find him in the book. But you probably know who Moses and his brother Aaron are. And that's a good thing. We need to have an understanding of the big parts of the story so that we can follow along the entire narrative and trust in the end. But the little parts, the little parts bring a richness to our reading and understanding of Scripture. We have some chefs in here, some more acclaimed than others, some aspiring. But, but what you know is that there can be some dishes that are going to be really good. They're going to be hearty. They're going to be tasty. People are going to enjoy them. But with a pinch of an extra little special secret ingredient, the meal's transformed into something that doesn't just sustain you, but imprints on you, that you remember it. The little details can take a Bible story and transform it from something you just look at and know to something that becomes a living, breathing part of who you are. We get that today. Today is one of those things because we've got this big story that many of you are familiar with. It is this narrative of this second youngest but favored son, Joseph, who rises up to become prime minister of Egypt. It is a story that has been captured on Broadway. I mean, when Andrew Lloyd Webber writes the score for your life story, you know, you can count on that being a big deal. Joseph and the amazing Technicolor coat. I mean, that's the sort of thing that gets remembered. We remember the big part about it. But there's a little detail, and we find these nuggets in these stories that I think makes things come to life so that, yes, we remember that he had older siblings. Yes, we remember that his father was favoring him. Yes, we remember that maybe he was a tattletale, told on his brothers. He's this guy that had a dream that his whole family would bow down to them, that made his brothers even matter at him. And we remember that his brothers threw him into a pit when he came to visit him, thinking, we'll just kill the little brat and get him out of the way. But they decide, no, better if we profit off of this and we'll sell him to a band that's heading on down to Egypt. So they sold their own brother into slavery. Joseph goes on down. He gets sold 
into Potiphar's house, does a wonderful job being a slave, a house servant for Potiphar, until Potiphar's wife sets her eyes upon him. He rebuffs her. She cries out, rape. What choice does Potiphar have but to believe his wife? Tosses him in jail. He goes from being sold into slavery to being falsely accused and imprisoned. Such is his lot in life. But his story doesn't end there. He, who has had his own dream of his family bowing down, has this encounter with a couple of prisoners, the baker and the cupbearer for Pharaoh. They have a dream, each one of them their own dream. On the same night, they're baffled by, they tell it to Joseph. Joseph interprets the dream. We find out later on their dreams come true. Pharaoh has a dream. He can't figure it out. Cupbearer says, I know a guy, brings him on out. He impresses Pharaoh with his knowledge, and boom, the next thing you know, he's the prime minister of Egypt. It seems like a pretty smooth trail, except for the very first words that Anne read in this verse. Because what Anne started out by saying was when two full years had passed. There wasn't this smooth transition from imprisonment to prime minister. You would think that this guy, Joseph, had gone along that way because it's just a couple of verses that separate those events. Except one of those verses says that's not how it went. And so we are left to try to figure out in our minds what was going on in that two-year period. It wasn't like Joseph had just been thrown into prison interpreted dreams, and had to wait. He had been in there beforehand. He was languishing in prison. And his last words to the cupbearer were, remember me. And the cupbearer forgot. So what was Joseph's life like when he was in the darkness of prison, a hope of being released, a hope of being remembered? But as the days went by, All he could do was realize that he'd been forgotten. A man who'd done nothing wrong, who'd only tried to do right whenever he could, languishing, falsely accused, an innocent man in prison, wanting to get out, but not. But two years pass, and we are told that Pharaoh has a dream, and nobody can figure out what it means. But only then does the cupbearer remember, ah, yeah, there was this other guy in prison. And so they go to prison. They get Joseph, and because he's been languishing in prison, he is disheveled. You don't just take him straight out of prison and present him to Pharaoh. You've got to clean this guy up. Give him a shave. Make him look presentable. Give him a new change of clothes. Again, indicators that this was living in squalor for this poor guy. Now, I want you to put yourselves in Joseph's shoes for a moment. Imagine that you've been suffering unjustly in prison, and you now have an audience with the guy that you know can set you free in a heartbeat. And this guy says to you, hey, listen, I've got a problem that nobody else can seem to solve, but I've heard that you're the guy. How do you respond? I'll tell you how I'd respond. I'd say, that's right. I'm your guy. 
You have no idea what I can do for you. But yeah, I can help you out with this problem. By the way, let that be a note to all of you that even though I am standing up here in this pulpit preaching a message, I am such a sinner of a man that I am not fit to tie the sandals of many of these biblical characters. My response in such a situation is to see I finally have a way out of my imprisonment and I'm going to take whatever glory that I need to take to assure that this guy knows that I am worth more to him out of prison than in. That's what I would have done. That's why there's no story about me in the Bible. (laughs) Joseph handled it differently. Joseph, instead of saying, yep, that's me, he says, I can't do it. But God will. Imprisoned for two more years. And his response is, it's not up to me. But God can do it if he wants to. I want to remind you that Moses, when pushed to the absolute limit by the Israelite people that he was leading, got so mad at them that he struck a rock with his staff, bringing forth water, and took credit for it just to shut them up. And he paid dearly for that comment. That was the reason why Moses didn't get a chance to enter into the promised land, because he took the glory for something that God had done. Joseph doesn't do that. Why not? How can somebody who's been through so much, so much wrong done to him in his life, still come out and give glory, honor, and praise to God and not take it for himself? How does he do that? Well, I think the answer lies in partly how he was raised. Because he knew that God had spoken to Abraham and promised that through Abraham all nations would be blessed. He knew that that promise continued through Isaac. He would have heard from his father Jacob that they were going to be the ones through whom this blessing would take place. He would have been taught that. He would have known that that's who God was. And then he, of course, had his own dreams. He had his own interaction with God. He had developed his own personal relationship with God. And so daily... He walked with him. Daily, he talked with him. Daily, he saw God working through his life so that when he was placed in a place of darkness, he had a relationship with the one who is light himself. That relationship sustained him so that he could come out of prison and give God glory. God's promises to bless the nations through him sustained him in the darkest of moments. God has made promises to us. God has made promises to never... For those of us who have received his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, those of us who've been baptized by the Holy Spirit and find ourselves in fellowship with God, he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. He has called to see us as being without sin when we come before him. 
He has promised that there will be a place for us in His kingdom. Promises that can never be broken. Gifts of light that we can hold on to in the midst of darkness. I want to weave into this a story of a fellow by the name of Howard Rutledge. Howard was fighting in the Vietnam War when his plane was shot down over North Vietnam. He parachuted down into a small village behind enemy lines, was taken captive. And for seven years, he found himself a guest in the finest of the Vietnamese prisoner of war camps. Five of those years in isolation. He found himself tortured, subjected to conditions that no human being should ever be in. When you want to talk about darkness, that's what he lived. Seven years of his life. And yet, as he found himself in these conditions, isolated, beaten, subjected to squalor, he began to remember those Sunday school lessons. He began to remember the nuggets of truth that had been conveyed to him in Scripture. And he and the other prisoners began to communicate. And they could remember the Lord's Prayer. They could remember the 23rd Psalm. They could remember bits and pieces of this Bible bringing life to their spirit. They remember John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And as they remembered God's promises as revealed in scripture. They put on this armor of God that sustained them. He would start out his day every morning doing his best to clean himself up. If they gave him something meager to eat, he would eat it. But then he would have his time reflecting on God's word, meditating, whatever he could do to bring back into the living parts of his brain that which were put into it so long ago so that he could feed on it, so that he could be sustained by it. The guards there had this plan of breaking down the prisoners so that they would succumb and do whatever it was that was asked of them. Howard and these other prisoners found that as they armed themselves with the word of God, their spirits were able to sustain whatever beating they took. In the midst of darkness, God's promises brought them light and brought them strength. And so to you out here, you who are living in the promises of God, who have received this outpouring of the Holy Spirit into your lives, you should be expressing joy even when life is so difficult and dark because you have that light that lives inside of you. You have God's promises to be with you every step of the way, to strengthen you. And the more and more of God's word that you know the more and more your light can shine. And the more and more you can handle the challenging times. Because the reality is, this world hates God's righteousness. Jesus was very clear to his disciples. He said, look, the world hates me. It's going to hate you too. You see what they're doing to me? You have no reason to expect anything else because the student is not above the master. 
They took him to the cross. We should expect nothing less. If we don't get it, that's a sign of God's mercy, not because that's the way it's supposed to be. We will experience darkness. And how we live our lives in darkness is perhaps the greatest witness to the world around us about the truth of God's promises. Now, there may be some of you in here who have not received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, who have not yet figured out that you have sinned mightily against God, but there's a path for forgiveness. And if that's you today, I hope that you are experiencing two competing emotions. The first emotion that I hope you're feeling, frankly, is fear. Because if you're not right with God, when you find yourself before him, you'll never be right with God. And folks, the wages of sin is death. And the end of Revelation paints a not-so-pretty picture of the second death in the lake of fire. A righteous and loving God must also be a God of justice. And therefore, if you have rejected God in this life, the only just thing to do is to allow that rejection to carry forth into the next. So if you're not right with God right now, fear the one that made all that is and determines your place in eternity. But you should couple that fear with a sense of hope. Because God does so love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. That phrase does not say whoever believed in him from the moment they were born or from when they were in elementary school. It may be with the very last moments of your dying breath. Romans 10 and 9 proclaims that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Again, no qualifier on when that happens. It just means do it. Because if you do, then that fear is overcome by the promise that God has made forth to all of us. You can have hope going forward. I want to close with these words. We do live in a fallen world, a materially darkened, sinful place that will one day pass away. And because this is where we live, citizens of the kingdom residing as aliens in this foreign land, we should expect darkness and we should expect persecution. It is the way it's going to be. But God has made a promise, several promises. They are unbreakable. And it's a good time to remind you that you are not the one holding on to him because our grips aren't strong enough. But he's holding on to us and his grip will never be broken. And his promise to hold us close to him, his promise to make good out of whatever we face, his promise that we will one day enter into his kingdom to experience something so joyful that we cannot imagine it with our limited human minds, an outpouring of love that will sustain us for eternity. Those are his promises. And we live with those promises in this world. And the better you know the promises in this book, 
the brighter your light will shine. And so I close with this final question. Members of this church, is the light shining in you right now like one single solitary candle on top of a birthday cake? Or is it a life-saving and life-preserving beam flowing out of a lighthouse? Your job is to share the gospel with others, to make disciples among all nations. The brighter your light shines, the more effective you will be. And the power of your light is right here. Get to know God's promises, commit them to your heart, and in the darkest, deepest moments in life, you'll be able to reflect upon them and reflect God's goodness to those who need to hear it. Amen? Amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Lord, help us to know your word better. Help us to hold firmly to your promises and help us to live a life that demonstrates that we know those promises are true so that we can endure the dark moments that we will face, that we can endure them with a sense of joy that makes no sense except from you. And may we, as we live out in those darkest moments, cause people to wonder why, so that they would be drawn to you. Because it's all about you, Father. And we just want to be a part of it and be in your presence. So we thank you for your word this day. And we thank you for those opportunities to come, whether they be in darkness or in light, to serve you with joy and gladness in our hearts. And we praise you, Father. In the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.